Welcome back, everyone. This is Eric Ellison with the Digital Education Podcast, and today I'm with Juliet Squire of Bellwether. And there's a story behind this podcast, and there's a story behind usually people who tolerate me enough to listen to me and ask, uh, let me ask questions. But Juliet is a senior partner in the policy and evaluation practice area at Bellwether, where she where she has provided policy analysis and advising support to school operators and support organizations, foundations, advocacy groups, and think tanks. Found it interesting that before joining Bellwether, Juliet, you worked at the New Jersey Department of Ed and oversaw the state's Race to the Top program and developed strategies for advancing technology-driven innovation. Yep. So, so Juliet, just really quickly, thank you, number one. Um, I'll tell a little bit of the story of how we met and then like how how like I knew like, OK, this was you were going to tolerate a good conversation with me. But then mostly like I'm really interested in what Bellwether is, but then also like why the why does this work in this education work matter to you? Yeah. Great. Thanks so much for having me. I'm really excited for this conversation. And um, you'll you'll tell the story of how we met, but I I remember our conversation sitting at the lunch table at a conference and you sort of peppering me with questions. I was like, oh, these are really good questions. I have to think more about this. Um, so really appreciate the chance to join you on on, on this. Um, Bellwether, to, to give you a, and your listeners a brief introduction, is a national nonprofit working to improve education and life outcomes for underserved families. Um, and we do that in a bunch of different ways. Um, we have a strategic advising team that does sort of management consulting and business strategy for um, a whole bunch of different types of education organizations. And then the team that I sit on, policy and evaluation, um, does a lot of policy research and analysis to try to inform and shape the direction that the field takes overall. Um, and the work that we've been talking about is, is called Assembly, and it's part of a new initiative at, at Bellwether called Beta, um, where we are really trying to bring together all of the different skills and experiences that we have on the Bellwether team to tackle big and interesting questions in this space. Um, and Assembly is really about trying to make sure that all families have access to a flexible and dynamic ecosystem of learning options um, so that they can customize their child's learning to meet that child's individual needs, interests, and goals. Um, so happy to share more about it, but I think about the work on assembly in particular, but the why behind it for me is, is really personal. I grew up in a suburb of Syracuse, New York. Um, I went to a school that my parents chose by virtue of where they bought a house. Um, and my, my mom was on the school board growing up. Uh, my dad was an attorney who worked with sort of the early charter schools in New York State in the late 90s. And so I quite literally grew up talking about education policy at the dinner table. Um, and that was intellectually very interesting to me. Um, but it was also personally interesting to me because while I was someone who fit well into the mold of what today's schools expect and want from kids and sort of succeeded in the traditional educational system, um, my brother really struggled with that. And um, despite the resources my family had, despite the positions of access and authority that my parents had, um, still really struggled to find an option or a suite of options that would really help him thrive and sort of saw and witnessed the experience of 
a, a sibling hearing from the uh, sources of authority in his own life that there was something wrong with him, not something wrong with the system that he was part of. Um, and so one of the things that really keeps me going in this work is thinking about um, all of the families that don't have access to those resources, to those positions of authority in a community um, and how much harder it is for them to navigate that complexity and to get their kids what they need. And so that's that's really the, you know, there's an intellectual interest here to absolutely, I think education is so important for the economic and political future of our country. Um, and um, the thing that really keeps me going when we run into barriers and the work gets hard is thinking about the individual kids like my brother who really needed something different from school. Well, it, it is amazing when you take that intellectual and professional and you tie it into the personal where it's like, okay, this means so much more that like, okay, when it gets hard, um, yes. it, it, it matters because I remember or because I know this person or I know this community or this group mm -hmm. of, of families or students. I love the term that you use for assembly. Um, and, and at that lunch, okay, so, so anybody out there who's listening, who knows me, you know, Juliet, she, she, she kind of shared who she was, she shared what she was working on. And then I did the classic thing that I did. And I said, I, can I ask some questions? And you, you, you let me ask questions. And anyone who knows me knows that anybody who tolerates my obnoxious questions or just my ponderings or wonderings. Um, knows that, that, that you're <laughs> that you're a good soul but one of the things that I love is as you talk about assembly and I'll link some of that so that people can dig deeper to the podcast but as you talk about assembly you talk about it as an ecosystem which I love and I truly appreciate and an ecosystem of options and choices an ecosystem where um a family can put together what's best for the learning opportunities, the learning needs, um, the learning experiences, and just the life experiences for each and every child. Can you explain a little bit more of like how you like constructed that or what the framework is behind that and, and dig a little deeper into why, why you chose like ecosystem thinking? Yeah, it's a great question. And you know, I will say we evolved on this. I mean, we started thinking, my co my colleague Alex Spurrier and I in particular started thinking about this work probably six to nine months before we really, we had resources to put behind it, to move it forward. And we started out thinking about this work as unbundling education. So sort of taking all of the things that a school provides and sort of making it more modular as, and modularity is the path towards customization. And um, we read a lot, we talked to a lot of folks. And one of the things that we shifted on very early on was that this work really couldn't be about taking education apart. It had to be about the process of how we reconstruct it, how we put it back together. And that's where the phrasing of assembly comes from, is this idea that we don't want to, we don't, the goal is not fragmentation. The goal is the ability to find coherence and customization in an ecosystem. Um, and actually the reason that we started thinking about the term assembly in particular is because we, we wanted first, we wanted to make sure that we were emphasizing the rebundling of learning opportunities, the coherence out of chaos that was necessary for customization. Um, but we also did want to evoke this 
um, association with assembly and community. Um, this idea that yes, schools are sources of incredible community um, for many, many people. And we see value in that and we don't want to lose that sense of community. And so part of the, the value that we, we hope that assembly enables is the ability to create new community or new communities among families and students to pers pursue shared purpose within that ecosystem. And so how do we come up with that? How do we create an ecosystem that isn't just lots of people in a fragmented marketplace or fragmented ecosystem picking and choosing and not interacting with each other? How do we create an ecosystem that allows a group of parents who might not live in the same place, who might not go to the same church, live on the same street, be in the same other communities to find a shared purpose and to, to pursue that purpose together? Um, and so that's, that's, I mean, maybe that's a little bit idealistic, but that's, that's the goal um, behind this. And then lastly, I think the other piece around the the ecosystem framing and the and the assembly framing is um a lot of the conversation that has that comes out of um the quote unquote marketplace of education and marketplace i think is a fairly good synonym for ecosystem but it lands very differently depending on who you're talking to right um but one of the things that we really wanted to emphasize in this work is that kids need personalized education that meets their individualized needs but education is not just a private good. It is also a public good. And so we also wanted to just evoke this idea of living in community with each other and the importance of education contributing to society and preparing students to contribute to society. So that's a little bit about how we how we thought about the language that we use um, and how we have thought about sort of the, how we've evolved the framing from being something around modularity and unbundling to something about, you know, more about building something new together. I, I love it because I think, you know, in so many ways, and this is what I truly appreciate is, is that I, idea of a couple of different things is, is one is the ecosystem. So the, the, the dynamism that oftentimes I think we lose in our system. Um, and so, so the dynamic nature of an ecosystem, but then also that place where it is that sense of building up and creating. Whereas I think in a lot of ways in our world today, we see, um, and my great concern as a professional educator is the tearing down, right? Mm -hmm. You know, and it's 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 the tearing down rather than the building up, rather than the in a sense the recreation, and then and then the also the the third part about I, I love about it that really drew me to you know just the conversation with you and learning more about it was the drawing of people together because schools have been such a huge part of. Yeah of drawing people together in community, right? You you even talk about it with your parents. They bought a house mm -hmm. in a community where there was a school that they could send you and then the lessons that they learned through your brother. And most Americans do that. They choose mm -hmm. a home in, in a community near a school. My parents chose a home because we could afford it in a community near a church that then mm -hmm. allowed me to go to um, a private school. Right. So mm -hmm. I, I, they, they chose very similar reasons, but different, not the pub traditional public school. So what, what in the last six months, have you, as you've seen some of these policies take off in states like Iowa and, you know, North Carolina now, and, yeah. and, you know, and I, I work in Texas and you watch the battle in Texas, but then Florida's grown and Indiana's grown and all of these types of things. 
like when you see the policies that have taken off since the six months when I first met you and had this conversation, what gets you super excited that says, hey, you know what? Like, this is really good. This is going in the right direction. This is like thumbs up. This is kind of what we would hope to imagine. And then is there something in this in this last six months that even gives you a rethink or a pause? Mm, Such a great question. And one I'm excited to answer, because I do think, I mean, the policy momentum behind um, ESAs, education savings accounts, is huge. Um, So many states have adopted it pre-pandemic. We were not in this place. Um, And so that that momentum is in some ways, very exciting because it it does recognize that there is a need to empower parents to play a greater role in how they customize their child's learning. And it provides financial resources to families to do that. Um, and that's that seems to me to be headed in the right direction. Um, I do think it's worth noting that there are lots of other policies that are also gaining traction that also provide optionality. So one of the things that I'm really excited about are the emergence of micro grant programs, like the one in Idaho, where families don't have to disenroll their child from their traditional school, um, but they get an amount of funding, um, often a couple thousand dollars, sometimes less than that, to purchase enrichment activities or supporting services for their kids in addition to school. And that really appeals to me because I think that it recognizes one of the sort of underappreciated inequities in education in the way that families are able to provide enriching experiences to their kids in the after school and summertime and starts to balance that um, that playing level that playing field as well. I think, and, and then I think, you know, the there's also been a preponderance of legislation on career pathways and, and helping kids in high school sort of come up with the paths that they want to take as they become adults. And I think that there are two things about that that I think are particularly exciting. One is recognizing that students have their own definitions of success. Families have their own definition of success. It doesn't always have to include a four-year college. Uh, my brother didn't end up going to college um, and he has a beautiful life and a beautiful family um, and is happy with that. And I and I respect that. And I think it's very easy for sort of influentials in the education space to say, well, I went to college and I, you know, I graduated, I got my bachelor's, my master's, my PhD. So therefore, that's what success looks like. And I and I like the idea of these policies that enable families to define success for themselves. I think the other thing that is um exciting to me about these policies is that they they begin to value agency in a way that I think is going to become increasingly important in our world moving forward. Our, the trends are, are there, right? The disaggregation of the media, just the number of jobs that any individual is going to have in the course of their lifetime, the ability to navigate complexity and find agency and exercise that agency is, I think, going to be a life skill that we need to teach kids at an earlier and earlier age. And if they have some exposure to that in middle school, when they start career exploration, and in high school, when they might do a work-based learning experience, that's exciting too. So I put all of those policies together in one bucket because there's so much attention on ESAs right now, but I actually think there's a lot, there's thematic continuity between all of these different policies that are really just providing options. 
I will say the thing that I'm most worried about with all of those policies is that customization is great. Fragmentation is bad. So how do we create customization without the risk of fragmentation? And that's where I think the we all in the sector need to spend a lot more time thinking about how we support students and families from in navigating the options that are available to them. Um, the school choice movement has struggled with this for a really long time, and there have been amazing organizations that have evolved to support that need from Families Empowered and Reschool Colorado um, and Love Your School in Arizona and many others who will sit down with a family at the proverbial kitchen table and help them figure out what their options are and how to get them. Um, but we need to invest in that at scale. We need to find a way to provide that support to many, many more families at a greater degree of sophistication without losing the relational aspect of the how personal educational decisions are. And so that to me is the thing that gives me pause because I am not sure that we are geared up as a sector to support that need. And the implication of not supporting that need is that the families who will benefit from these policies are those who already have agency, who already have those resources. And it could, um, and it will, I think, really limit the equity, equity of access. Well, and that's such a great, great point and great question. And it's, it's, it's even something that I've given a lot of thought to because, you know, I think in the school choice world, there's a lot of the... Um, libertarians that you know just yeah. let the markets decide people people will be good consumers and we know that people aren't always the wise consumers that we hope they'd be um and then there is that place where then you know that that wise consumer is oftentimes that person with the knowledge with the resources with the agency that already exists and having been a school leader a high school counselor in particular myself in, in settings that were urban or under-resourced um, and sometimes in those places where people didn't have the same knowledge, didn't have the same access, it was creating, um, creating the advocacy opportunities for them to get the things that, that were right in front of them. You know, that people that I think oftentimes like we even look at like with businesses, like, you know, there's a reason why they're uh, like there's some great research on why businesses have such bad consumer um, um, consumer facing, um, you know, solutions because yeah. because it inhibits people from getting the solutions that they need or for them spending the money to solve problems that they need. So. What you know, as you think about assembly and as you think about this ecosystem and as you think about this this agency that we want to create in 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 families and in students, I love the idea of accelerating education. I I've felt for 20 plus years in my career that we've placed a lid on students. How do we step into this place of becoming good advocates or strong advocates for families to get greater opportunities that accelerate the hopes, the dreams that they have for their sons and daughters, whether that be someone with significant learning needs or whether that be just kind of somebody who was really normative and, and, and not really memorable like me or somebody who, you know, was, is really like, wow, that kid, like you see these stories at graduation every year, this kid 
that I was reading about that's like 14 who, you know, just graduated with his, his college degree. And it's like, mm-hmm. how, how do we step into that space and say advocate, but then advocate for those, especially who are the neediest in kind of mm-hmm. that marketplace of, of education and, and in this, in this situation? Yeah, it's a great it's a great question, and it's actually something we've been thinking a lot about as we um, work to um, foster the development of some new navigation solutions. Is we've got um, tech platforms that are partnering with states to administer ESA programs, and how to how does a family engage with that platform? The customer for that platform is usually the state agency; they're the ones paying for it but the families and the students are the users. And so how do we make sure that um, the the needs and experiences and perspectives of of families are being incorporated into the design of that platform and the functionalities of that platform? That's super technical. On the the flip side, it's um, how do we do two things? I think one is understand the needs, experiences, and perspectives of the families who we want to be able to participate in these policies if they want to, right? Nobody is, this is not a requirement. Um, and, and secondarily, um, how do we trust them? Cause I do think that there is a, a real risk of paternalism in this sector where those um, who have been successful in education and earned A's and got the degrees and and are now in positions of power get tunnel visioned about what about what success looks like and what that definition is and how to get there and what works for kids that are not our own. And I think there's a real need. And I, I think that's one of the benefits of these more flexible ecosystems is that it really does empower families and parents to say, you know what, my kid, like, yes, they're behind in math right now, but I'm much more worried about the fact that they come home every day saying they hate school or that they're getting bullied. And the parent is the only one with that information. And this, I could go off track on data sharing and like how families have limited access to all the information about their child's learning, but I won't do that. And I, But I think that, you know, part of it is listening and part of it is trusting. And we have to get better at both of those things. And we have to create, this is actually one of the things I love about Bellwether is that because we do work with um, family and student organizations, and we do this thought leadership conceptual work, that we have an opportunity to create a feedback loop between the two. And I see that feedback loop missing between policymakers and advocates and the people that they're trying to serve. And so how can we create those mechanisms of communication? And I love it because that's the world I live in. I live in that feedback. I, I feel very much like I live in the translation s- stage of that feedback loop of, you know, from the professional educators, the people in the schools, and then yeah. and then the policymakers and all those. So, so okay, close us out with maybe a word of wisdom then, because one of the, yeah. one of the, in, in that translation loop, and one of the things I worry about with ESAs in particular but then also like this weird thing, you know, and I talked about this with with Chris Stewart on my last podcast about um, how states now like, hey, we're going to give you school choice, but we're not going to give you we're not going to allow those schools to have choice of what they teach. Right. Mm. Or what they learn. And so learner choice. And so yeah. one of the things that I was schooled in under Charlie Glenn was this idea of, 
hey, we, we promote school choice so that schools can be distinctive to meet the needs of parents and students mm-hmm. and those needs. What, what's the translational, like, what would you say to educators to say, hey, you know what, like, you, you have a place in building up mm-hmm. this work too, mm-hmm. um, rather than just waiting for it to be dictated on you by policymakers or by people like us who now tend to spend most of our time outside of schools, looking inside um, and, and trying to kind of figure out what's going to help them best, yeah. you know, so what would be, what would be maybe that last word of wisdom that you'd give to professional educators to say, Hey, you know what, like this actually could be really exciting for you too. Cause a lot of yeah. them are really worried. Yes, absolutely. And I think, I think there is a future if we, if we do this right, I think there's a future of assembly where the professionalization of teaching comes out um, very, very clear because we know that satisfaction with the teaching profession is low. We know most teachers are, don't recommend the teaching profession to others. And we know that um, we ask teachers to do an awful lot, far more than they were asked to do um, when the factory model or the, you know, the common school movement began. And so I think one of the benefits of this flexible ecosystem is that it's flexible for teachers too. Um, you know, there's an opportunity for teachers to specialize in ways that they interact with families. Um, I remember visiting Summit Public Schools years ago and, and sort of watching their team teaching model. And one of the teachers was at the help desk, you know, the big room, like 100 kids in it. One teacher's at the help desk, one teacher's doing the data analytics, one is wandering around the room doing behavior management, keeping kids on task. And thinking about how we leverage individual teachers' skills, expertise, talents, passions um, in the teaching role, I think is really exciting. And we need to find ways to do that that don't remove our best teachers from directly interacting with kids. So that's, I think, one really exciting thing. I think the other is, you know, we've seen a lot more teacher entrepreneurship in the last few years. What does it look like to sort of going back to the to the Al Shanker version of charter schools from the early 90s, um, where they were meant to be these like really teacher run organizations? What are the potential for teachers to become entrepreneurs and to set up the options and to teach and to work in the way that they want to and to find the parents and students who align with that vision? And then I think the third thing is um, that I think is really exciting is what is the role, you know, we know we need these navigation supports for families. We know that there's a tech revolution coming. It's already here on artificial intelligence. It's going to disrupt everybody's job and teachers, I don't think, are going to be immune from that. But what are the the uniquely human relationship-based things that families and teachers need or families and students need? And how can we leverage this incredible workforce of people dedicated to family and student success to help provide that navigation support, to help say to parents like, hey, I see your kid is struggling in math. We've got like, here are five options that we have in our community that could help your child. Let's talk about which one might be the best fit. And and how do we sort of re- unbundle and rebundle the responsibilities that teachers have 
to allow them to find the specific roles that that really get them excited about being in their being in their jobs and and exceeding in their jobs and um, really having an impact. So that's how I'm thinking about it. There's obviously, you know, with all of this, it's it's great on paper and it's exciting to talk about and the um, the steps and the and the barriers and everything towards making it a reality are are significant. And that's that's where we're headed next is really trying to what are the biggest barriers to this being success possible and also equitable? And then how do we solve for those? Well, and I appreciate I appreciate that, like in that dynamism of an ecosystem, it it can get messy, mm-hmm. right? And if we, you know, and so there is that place of like, hey, how do we do this together, right? And that's where I love the assembly idea. How do we do this together? How do we do this in community? How do we do this, you know, um, you know, with with the skill sets and the strengths that mm-hmm. we have? So. This has been incredible. I could keep going. I've got so many more questions, but I know those, those will come later. And those we'll will have to do time. it again sometime. But but what <laughs> what what um if people want to get connected with you or learn more about your work, like what would be places that you would send them to? Yeah. Um. The first is our website on assembly, which is bellwether.org slash beta slash assembly. Um. That's where you can find all of the work that we've published on this topic. Um, folks can try to tweet at me on Twitter. It's at Juliet Squire. I don't really use Twitter very much anymore. Um, but, um, and you can email me at juliet.squire at bellwether.org. Juliet, this is amazing. Thank you so much. Great. Thank you so much. I've really enjoyed it.